0: We are getting very, very close to the end of our study of the book of Colossians. In fact, today and next Sunday will be our final two Sundays in the book, and today we're in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11, so it's not a very long portion of Scripture, but when I was thinking about the theme that I was seeing as I was preparing for this week, one of the big theme- themes that I was seeing as I was looking at this portion of Scripture is just the fact that God can make something great out of your either unconventional or messy life. And the people that are brought up in this particular portion of Scripture, I think, are great illustrations of this truth. In fact, you're going to see at least five names here as uh, we work our way through this passage of Scripture. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Again, we're picking up at verse 7, and I'm going to read down to verse Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time to worship you together, to study your word together, to, by your grace, grow in our walk with you. And Lord, we're grateful that as we're looking at this last section of the book of Colossians, that we could see, even in Paul's closing remarks, as he makes the statements that we're looking at today, even as he, as he makes the statements that we'll be looking at next week, we could see just some interesting things that you were teaching him about his circumstances and about the people that you had surrounded him with. And Lord, we pray that today as we look at certain circumstances, certain circumstances, as we think about some of the things that, that we might identify with, even as we look at the example of the names of the people that Paul brings up in this passage of Scripture, we pray, Lord, that we would learn more about the work that you do in and among your people. And Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this that I almost wonder if on the surface it kind of looks like one of those portions of Scripture that just feels like something you would breeze through. But as we dig into it, we we realize, Lord, that there's a lot here that that is highly valuable in our walk with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our minds and prepare our hearts to understand what we're reading and studying together today. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that that I think the church should be mindful of is that very few people have a neat and tidy life. Would you agree with that statement? I mean, I think a lot of times we, we probably wish that we had a very neat and tidy life, but the truth is that very few, if any of us, make it through life without some of the highs and some of the lows that really add a little bit of color to our stories. And I think sometimes, even though that's the case, it can be tempting at times for us to maybe attempt to present ourselves to each other as if everything's just been going fine and there's been no bumps and there's no bruises and, and no high moments and no low moments all along the way. We just, it's like, how are you doing, brother? I'm just, I'm great. You know, I'm blessed. I'm highly favored doing wonderful. How about you? Also the same, and it's always been that way. Lovely, lovely, right? Reminds me of my favorite lunch meat, bologna, right? (laughs) And I think it's probably useful for us to kind of take a break from trying to present ourselves as maybe people that have just kind of always had an easy path and everything's always gone fine, there's never been any highs or low moments because that's not realistic. And the other problem I think that that we experience with that is I actually think it robs God of the opportunity to testify to his goodness that he's demonstrated through those bumpy circumstances. Don't rob him of the opportunity to testify through your life. There's something that you've experienced that would be beneficial to somebody else. I I think it's good to be a bit transparent about it, about our struggles, about our low points, about our difficulties. And the truth is, when I look back over the course of my own life, I see my better moments and I see my lower seasons. They're both there. I I remember a time when I tried to do things the world's way, only to discover that that absolutely does not work. I I remember the context that I grew up in, that, that for a season was a complete disaster, and yet God brought wonderful things out of that mess. In fact, when I look back over the course of my life, When I, especially when I think about some of those moments that I really hated in the moment, if I'm honest with you, I hated them in the moment. I don't still feel the same way now. I actually look at these things very differently, and I'll give you a very specific and personal example that really bothered me at a season, but now I can actually see how God was using it. Uh, Many of you know some of my family background, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I was about eight years old when my parents divorced, and my mother was awarded custody. And soon after she was awarded custody, we moved into a government-subsidized housing project up in northeastern Pennsylvania. And I will admit to you that I wasn't crazy about that, and I very much missed the days when we had a home of our own. It was a very drastic change, a very drastic difference in my growing up experience. And then a few years after that, she remarried, and we moved into her new husband's home And I'll describe the home for you without going into a ton of detail, but I'll tell you two things about it. The front of that house at one point was hit by a drunk driver, and it was never fixed. It was never repaired. And the yard had, and this is not an exaggerated number because I remember counting at one point, the yard had at least 50 cars in various stages of disrepair and decomposition. And so that was the context that I was living in, and if you can think back to your growing up experience, when do you tend to remember feeling the most insecure about everything? Isn't it kind of like your teenage years? And that was that season of my life, where you're kind of insecure about everything to begin with, and that provided another insecurity, and one of my lowest moments in the midst of that season, I used to dream about kind of just getting out of that, I didn't want to be in it. I remember one of my lowest moments in that season was when a a man came to the door of our house, and he asked if he could speak to the owner of the junkyard. That's how he phrased it. And he said it innocently. He wasn't trying to be a wise guy. He just asked if he could speak to the owner of the junkyard. And I remember being shocked, and I I said, this isn't a junkyard. And then I I closed the door on him. And, um, And up to that point, it had never occurred to me that people thought I lived at a junkyard. I never... That never dawned on me. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me. But now that I knew that, I, did my, I remember doing my absolute best during my high school years, during that season of life, to not let people know where I lived. I didn't want them to know where I I'd have friends drop me off at other houses. And then I would walk to my house from where their parents dropped me off. And all sorts of creative things. And I think people knew, but I just like to convince myself that they didn't know. And now I look at that and I think, you know what? If I could go back in time, I actually would not change that experience. I don't think it wasn't pleasant to go through. It wasn't something that I enjoyed going through at that time. But I'm actually grateful for that experience because the Lord showed me things that I don't think I would have understood otherwise because my life doesn't look like that right now. So let's say my life never looked like that, okay? Well, then that means that there are probably lessons and and moments that I would not be able to identify with because I would not have had those experiences. And part of the long-term blessing that came from that season was the Lord taught me in the midst of that, in the midst of intense insecurity, family disruption, all sorts of things that I, I was trying to deal with in the moment, maybe even trying to escape in the moment. He helped me to learn that I can rely on him, that he is sufficient in our high moments, in our low moments, in our moments where we're feeling everything's fine, and uh, in a moment where we might be embarrassed or in a moment where we feel like there's so much going on in my life, I just can't even control these things. These are decisions other people are making, and it's impacting me, and I have no control over it. And what I notice as I look back over the course of my life, one of the things I realize, we'll put it this way, I started pastoring when I was 21 years old. And when I think back to those experiences growing up, learning to rely on the Lord in the midst of a lot of chaos, and also just kind of the emotional pain that we were dealing with at that time, one of the blessings was that the Lord helped me develop an emotional strength that prepared me for some of the tasks that He was going to be asking me to do in not very many years from that period of time. And so it's hard for me to look back at that season and say anything but thank you. I'm grateful that I had those experiences because it taught me things I wouldn't have learned otherwise. And then I look at a portion of Scripture like we just read in Colossians. And one of the things that's very easy to do when we go through a portion of Scripture like this, especially as we come to the end of Paul's letters, right, when we're reading one of his letters, he often ends his letters with a list of names where he's addressing different people for different things. And sometimes it's easy to go through that list and not think a whole lot about it. But here's the thing. Each and every one of these names that he lists here is a real person, with a real set of experiences, and I think that there's something that we can learn from those experiences, because many of these individuals had very unique experiences and very unique backgrounds, and I actually want to take a moment to highlight some of these things, because when I look at a passage like this, it reminds me that God can make something great out of our unconventional and messy lives. You don't have to hand God a tidy life. You don't have to hand that to him. You don't have to say, look, Lord, I got this all tidy and figured out from worldly standards, and it looks great, and no one ever walks up to my door and and asks if uh, I could speak to the owner of the junkyard. It doesn't look like that, Lord. It's tidy. It's not messy. And here's the thing. In addition to the fact that God can make use of our unconventional and messy lives, something else that he does, it's a huge blessing that I think Paul was testifying to in this passage, is that he also, on purpose, brings people into your life that are there to help you inspire you, and teach you something. And then you look at this list of names that the Apostle Paul references in a portion of Scripture like this, and I think it's instructive. And I want to highlight these individuals that Paul brings up, and the first is a guy named Tychicus. Now, Tychicus isn't a name that still, to my knowledge, gets used very commonly, but Tychicus is referenced in Colossians 4, verses 7 and 8. And I'll tell you who this guy is even before I reread those two verses. Tychicus was the guy who's willing to walk with you and stand by your side. That's the kind of guy Tychicus was. Let me reread these two verses, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, let me pause there for a second and just make this statement, and I know some of you are preparing for various roles of volunteer ministry and various roles of vocational ministry, and I'll tell you what, accountability is something that all ministry leaders need. There's no exception to that statement. All ministry leaders need accountability in their life. Ministry is not meant to be done alone, and if the Lord raises you up to a position of leadership or a position of influence in the church, it's important to demonstrate character, it's important to demonstrate integrity. It's important to also demonstrate transparency. Be the same person in front of people that you are when you're not in front of people. Be the same guy both times. And as Paul was closing out the words of this letter, I I believe that that's exactly what he was personally trying to demonstrate in these words. And so Paul told the believers at Colossae that his friend Tychicus was going to come and he was going to tell them everything he was doing while he was absent from them. So while he wasn't with them, Tychicus would be giving them that report, filling them in on all the things that were going on, and Paul describes Tychicus here as a beloved brother. He describes him in multiple ways. He describes him as a a beloved brother, but he also says he's a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And when he visited the Colossians, what he was going to do is he was going to let them know what Paul had been working on and the ways in which the Lord had been blessing that work. And he would share this with the goal of encouraging their hearts, particularly if they were worried about the fact that that Paul's well-being might be in question, because at this point, he was still under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial. But again, who was this Tychicus guy? Who was he? Does Scripture tell us any more about him? Well, Tychicus was the kind of guy that's a friend that all of us should want. And if you have a friend like this, you're blessed indeed. He was the kind of guy who would walk the extra mile with you. He was the kind of guy and and the type of friend who would stand by your side while the rest of the world turns its back on you. Tychicus is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and we see a particular reference to him in Acts chapter 20. And, um, and when Paul was in the process of revisiting some of the churches that he had planted earlier in his ministry, and, and he was bringing an offering from those churches to the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem at the time was, was dealing with a lot of of issues and strain and poverty and all sorts of things, and so a collection was made from all the other churches and brought to Jerusalem, and it would be alleviating some of their problems and some of their needs. And uh, Tychicus is mentioned in that context as being someone who was with the Apostle Paul. It was actually discovered in that context, as Paul was planning to to travel to Jerusalem and to deliver this offering, that a plot to harm Paul was actually being hatched by some of the people in his opposition. And so Paul changed the planned direction of the travel that he was going to take to get back to Jerusalem. He changed it slightly, the scripture tells us, and Tychicus was one of the men who accompanied him on that journey to Jerusalem. That's a pretty good friend, isn't it? If, you're, if somebody is, in a sense, if a group of people are threatening your life, and you're about to make a long journey, and you've got the type of friend that says, I'll go with you that's a pretty good friend, right? That's the kind of guy Tychicus was. And it's easy to kind of read over his name at the end of the book of Colossians and forget that this was the kind of guy that was that deep of a friend of the Apostle Paul that he was willing to risk his life life to travel with him over a long period of of time, you know, over a distance, great area, under threat. Now, just in a personal way, aren't you glad for the people that the Lord's brought into your life that reflect that kind of character to you? And the list is usually small. If you've got a few people in your life like that, you've got more than most. It's usually a very small list of people that you think would, would kind of walk with you through a season like that. And I think people who stick with us during hard seasons and maybe even walk with us when it feels like the rest of the world is plotting against us actually think that those are the kind of people that the Lord brings into our life who remind us of the steadfast presence of Jesus. Because one of the things that we appreciate and love and are grateful for in regard to our walk with Christ is the fact that He doesn't abandon us. That He walks through our unconventional seasons with us, that He walks through the messy seasons with us, and that He sticks with us when it feels like other people either abandon us or threaten us. And Tychicus, as he demonstrated that kind of Christ-centered love for the Apostle Paul, in a very visible way, was reminding Paul just through his actions of the nature of Jesus Christ and how Jesus operates in the life of anyone who calls on his name. Tychicus was one of those guys who ministered to Paul in that way, a beloved brother, a faithful minister. When Paul used those words, he wasn't talking about just some kind of casual friend. He was talking about a guy that he knew and had seen tested. But then he also lists another guy. You notice this name that was mentioned there? Onesimus. Is that name familiar to anybody, Onesimus? He's not, he's not only mentioned in this portion of Scripture. Who was Onesimus? Well, Onesimus was a runaway slave who found freedom in Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 9. And Paul says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, I love a good redemption story. I think all of us probably do. Some of the best movies are, are good redemption stories, Right? Um, now, in the city of Colossae, so Paul's writing this letter from Rome to the believers in the city of Colossae. In that city, slavery was a very common thing. Not uncommon at all. It was very common. It was very common in the entire Roman Empire. A large percentage of people in the Roman Empire were bond servants or debt slaves in one way or another. And one particular slave, a man named Onesimus, He actually decided to escape from that slavery, or at least attempt to escape from that slavery, by running away. And uh, when we look at elsewhere in Scripture where it talks about Onesimus, Onesimus was a bondservant to another man named Philemon. In fact, Paul's letter to Philemon, which was written, by the way, during this same period of time, his letter addresses the issues related to what Onesimus had done. But somewhere along the way, it's kind of interesting because both Philemon and Onesimus came to faith in Christ. So Philemon as the the, uh, slave owner and Onesimus as the slave, both end up coming to faith in Christ. And again, Paul addresses this in his letter to Philemon. And so this is what Paul encourages Philemon in that letter to do. He says, listen, forgive him. Forgive Onesimus. I mean, technically, you could get Onesimus in big trouble and the law will support you if you choose to do it. But instead of doing that, forgive him. Welcome him back to Colossae when he comes back to Colossae. Stop treating him like a slave. And you know what Paul tells him? He says, stop treating him like a slave. Start treating him like a brother. Because he's your brother now. He's not a slave. He's your brother. Now, Onesimus was the kind of guy that at one point was pretty confused about his identity. He knew that in Roman society, he was a slave. And so for many years, that's how he viewed himself. I, I gather that he got sick of it. But for many years, that's how he viewed himself, and even when he ran away, I'm sure he still looked at himself as a runaway slave. And so he was really wrestling with his identity, but now he had a new identity in Christ, and a new purpose in Christ. He found liberty in Jesus, instead of spending the rest of his life running from his past. And by the way, I don't know if anyone here feels like you've been spending a lot of time trying to run from your past, but i got to tell you, Onesimus tried that. It really doesn't work. Instead of spending the rest of his life trying to run from his past, what he does here is he acknowledges it. And he embraced his new identity as a brother in Christ. And he took the risk to return to Colossae. He takes the risk to return. Paul even addresses this here in the letter, sending you Onesimus, the guy who ran away from Colossae, the guy who ran away from Philemon. He's coming back. And Onesimus spent the rest of his life serving as an example to the church of the new things that Jesus does in a life that's submitted over to him. He was a runaway slave who now found freedom in Christ, and he didn't, he didn't spend the rest of his life trying to run away from his past. He comes back and he addresses it headlong, you know, just, just head on, because at this point now, he realizes he has a brand new identity in Christ. And i got to tell you, our new identity in Christ can help us confront things from our past that we would say maybe are unsavory or maybe not our favorite things to think about, and we don't need to let those things continually define us, because Onesimus certainly didn't. But now Paul also mentions another guy. He talks about a guy named Aristarchus. Who's Aristarchus that he addresses as he's closing this out? Well, Aristarchus is the guy who doesn't fear prison because he's actually looking forward to a much better life. And so prison apparently doesn't scare the guy. Look at what he says in verse, the first part of verse 10. Paul simply says this about Aristarchus. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Paul here takes a mention, or takes a moment to mention Aristarchus here. Aristarchus was someone, by the way, who had accompanied the apostle Paul during the course of his third missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 19, we're actually told that Aristarchus was arrested after the riot that took place in Ephesus when the silversmiths in that town got really irritated that Paul was doing ministry there. And the reason they got irritated in Ephesus was because they believed that Paul preaching the gospel was going to impact their trade. They made little idols. You know, this is where the the temple to Artemis was. And so they would make these silver idols, and they would sell these idols. And people would travel from all over the place. And while they were there, they'd pick up a souvenir, and they'd bring the idols back to their homes. And and all of that was going on. And and they were irritated and worried when Paul came there, and he's preaching the gospel. And they're like, listen, this guy has a reputation for for upending society. If he goes around preaching about this Jesus, we're going to actually lose our trade. And that doesn't sit very well with us, and so they get the whole city in an uproar, the Scripture says, and they turn it into an argument that's kind of part religious and part patriotic because they're like, how could this guy come into our city and, and, uh, and kind of trample our customs and trample our faith and, and, and tra- trample our, the heritage of this location? This needs to be stopped, and then people get all, got all worked up about it, and the whole city was in an uproar, and a couple of Paul's companions got arrested in the process, and Aristarchus was one of them. And the reason they got arrested was simply association. It wasn't like Aristarchus was going around causing trouble. He wasn't going around turning over tables. He wasn't going around, uh, you know, like starting fistfights with people and saying, come on, bring it, you know. It wasn't that sort of thing. It's just that he was associated with Paul, and if they could have got their hands on Paul... They would have arrested Paul in that context as well, and Paul even wanted to go where all the action was to see if he could address it, and the Scripture tells us that other believers were like, Paul, don't go anywhere near this. And they're like, yeah, but they they arrested Aristarchus. They arrested others. like, don't go anywhere near there. They'll probably tear you to shreds. Don't go anywhere near there. And so other believers kept Paul away from the action, but Aristarchus was right there in the midst of it, and uh, they arrested him in Ephesus simply because he was associated with Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't suppose that any of us hope to be arrested, okay? And uh, I I happen to know that there's a retired police officer here in our presence who, if, if he wanted to, you know, I'm pretty sure he knows how the cuffs still work, so keep in line, you know. I'm just, I'm looking around, all right, everybody looks like they're behaving, all right, that's good. But I don't think too many of us would want to be arrested, um, by the way, if your pastor ever confessed that he was cuffed and put in the back of a car, would, would you believe him or would you find a better church? Both are true. Happened when I was uh, 14 years old, believe it or not. I didn't actually do anything that time. I just, it was wrong place, wrong time. It all worked out. My mom wasn't too happy about it, but I'll save that story for another time or maybe tell you in the lobby. That's a lobby story since I'm being recorded. But anyway, when you, when you look at, I heard someone over there say, wow. That's a cliffhanger, right? (laughs) Um, But I don't think too many of us would probably want to be arrested. I don't think any of us would kind of look for that to be something that happened to us. But when you look through the Old Testament, what do you notice about many of the prophets in the Old Testament? Many of them were arrested, but not just them. It's also true of men like John the Baptist. It's also true of Aristarchus. We just saw his name here, right? It's also true of all the apostles, all of them. Scripture says got arrested at one point or another. It's also true of Jesus Christ Himself. Very sketchy faith we have here, isn't it? In fact, one of the strongest believers I know present day is a, is a man who I mean knows the Word of God through and through. And you know when he came to faith in Christ, you know when he learned the Word of God while serving a 25-year prison sentence. He's one of the strongest believers I know. Walks with the Lord, loves the Lord, glorifies the Lord, but has that moment in his past, and he, he testifies to it openly and what the Lord did in his life through it. And at present throughout this world, right now, there are believers who are being imprisoned because they are not afraid of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's happening right now, present day. It's not just New Testament, you know, when that's being written. It's not just during the Old Testament era. It's present day, and there are believers who are bold enough to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even in the midst of governmental or societal pressure not to do so. And so when I look to their example, when I remember the example of the believers who came before us, I'm reminded that we do not need to fear what may come when we testify about Jesus Christ, whether you live in a context that's favorable to it or whether you live in a context that is not favorable to it. And then I look at somebody like Aristarchus, and I don't think that, you know, the highlight of his life was the fact that he ended up being arrested in Ephesus because of his association with the gospel or association with the Apostle Paul. But one of the things I think he'd be most pleased with with is the fact that people knew he was a follower of Christ so thoroughly that they said, if we want to stop the message of the gospel from being propagated here in this city. we got to get that guy and that guy and that guy. And I have to say, what a wonderful thing to be known as someone who is a mouthpiece for the gospel, that people would say, if you want to get the gospel off the streets, you're going to have to stop that person from talking. And that's the type of guy that Aristarchus was, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ in the midst of a culture that pressured him to keep quiet and threatened his life if he didn't keep quiet and certainly threatened his freedom if he didn't keep quiet and when you look at something like that why is somebody like that willing to deal with that and why are believers in our present day willing to deal with what they deal with and why are we willing to deal with what we deal with well it's because we're looking forward to something better if I thought this was all there was I'd certainly be a lot I think I'd spend my life perpetually discouraged But when I go through hard seasons, when you go through hard seasons, when things are cast upon us that we feel like we have no control over, and they're unpleasant, keep in mind that that's not the end of the story. And that's why a guy like Aristarchus was able to put up with these things, because he could see beyond it. We could see with the eyes of faith beyond what our natural eyes can see. And if you're approaching each day with hope, it definitely has an impact on how you handle the trials of the moment. See beyond them into the glorious future that God has in store for all those who know Jesus Christ. Something else that Paul brings up here, very interesting story when you think about it. He brings up a guy named Mark. Sometimes in Scripture, he's also referred to as John Mark. And Mark, who's this guy? Well, he's the guy who once abandoned you, but then grew up and became your friend. Look at what Paul says here in Colossians 4, second part of verse 10. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, "...and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him." Kind of wonder, why is Paul saying, hey, listen, you've received instructions about this guy. If he comes to you, welcome him. Why does he feel the need to, in parentheses, tell us a little bit about this? Why does he just feel like he needs to say this? Welcome this guy. Don't disassociate from him, but actually welcome him. Well, Let me say this. Recently, I was looking through some social media posts from about 10 years ago. You know how Facebook shows you your memories? You ever notice that? So I was looking through some of my memories and came across some posts from about a decade ago, and I was reminiscing about some funny moments and some family moments and things like that. And as I did that, I started looking through the comments on one of those posts, and it dawned on me, that some of the people who were very much part of my life during that season a decade ago have basically become a memory now. Now, some have passed away, but others that are still living have just, in a sense, disappeared. And so you look at that, and sometimes when people do that, do you ever have people kind of do that in your life, and you're like, where did you go? Like, where did you go? Like, you were part of my life at this point— and then you just disappeared. You just stopped communicating. You just kind of go away. And, and, and how, does it, how does it feel? like? Especially if you're somebody who tries to be a loyal friend, how does it feel when you experience that? Don't you almost feel like a sense of abandonment? Sometimes it could even feel like a sense of betrayal. And I think Paul looked at Mark and was like, that's the kind of guy you were to me, Mark. Because Scripture tells us that, that Paul experienced something like that from Mark. At one point, Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas, and if you remember, Paul and Barnabas had done a whole bunch of things together, a whole bunch of ministry together, and Mark was Barnabas' cousin, and um, and he had and, you know, he'd committed to serve together in ministry with Paul, and uh, then abandoned the work. He abandoned it. So for a while, Paul did not want to have anything to do with Mark. He's like... I, I, I don't know, by the way, I don't know if Paul looked at Mark and said, that guy's dishonest. Or if he looked at that guy and he said, he's just immature. Or if he looked at him and said, he's just a complete wimp. That guy's a complete wimp. Or maybe he looked at him and he said, that guy's a total loser. He's the type of guy who'll tell you one thing and then go do another thing. He's a total loser. But at one point, Paul rejected the idea of serving with Mark in any capacity for any reason For a season, he wanted to have nothing to do with them. and In fact, Scripture tells us that Paul and Barnabas argued so sharply about this that even they kind of parted ways. They're like, forget this. He's like, I am not doing anything with your cousin. I'm not doing anything with Mark. This guy is not an honest guy. I'm not doing anything with him. But in time, Paul's feelings towards Mark changed. And I'm guessing some of that had to do with Mark repenting of his immaturity, but I also think a lot of that had to do with Christ reminding Paul of the grace and mercy that he had shown him all along the way, even though he personally didn't deserve that from Jesus. And I think Paul, when he had a little time to reflect on this, and when Mark had some opportunity to grow up, the two of them were like, you know, we ought to reconcile this. You keep saying you want to serve in ministry, Mark, and I keep telling you no, and yet now I'm looking at your situation, I'm thinking maybe, maybe you'd Should be given another chance. I mean, Christ gave me a second chance. Maybe you should be given another chance. And so Mark ended up becoming someone Paul trusted. In fact, if you look at some of the very last words Paul wrote, he wrote some very complimentary things about Mark in the book of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter. But Mark becomes a very trusted friend of the Apostle Paul. And so now you have Paul saying, listen, I think part of what he's saying here is listen, you may have heard of Mark's reputation that sometimes he can wimp out, and sometimes he's the type of guy that, you know, when stuff gets tough, he just runs. Welcome him. When he comes to you, just welcome him. Trust me, welcome him. You see Paul vouching for him, giving him a second chance. And I'll tell you what, the church has benefited from this restoration ever since. You personally have benefited from this restoration. And you might be saying, well, How? Like, how have I personally benefited from this restoration? Well, I'll tell you who this Mark is. It's the very same guy that the Holy Spirit inspired to write down the first of the Gospels that was written down, the Gospel of Mark. So there's a book of the Bible that was written by this very Mark. And it was a book that it's believed that it was written in conjunction with the Apostle Peter that Peter and Mark worked together on this and Mark wrote it down and Peter it's believed was his main source for this first gospel account to be written down and you and I people who know about Jesus and know about the earthly ministry of Jesus well how do we know about it because the holy spirit inspired Mark and several others to write it all down so we benefit from this restoration so i look at this and i think isn't it great that the lord brings some people into our lives that Maybe at one point they abandon you, but maybe it's time to kind of take a second look at it and say, you know what? Maybe you could become a trusted friend. Maybe we let bygones be bygones instead of just letting that, that resentment to build or that bitterness to continue. Let's end it and let's see what this new chapter looks like. Mark was that guy for Paul, and now Paul, Paul was vouching for him. But there's one other name that you can see Paul bringing up here in this portion of Scripture. It's a guy named Justice. Well, in fact, he's got a couple names here, but He's the guy that saw the light and had a change of heart, and he's the last guy I want to show you real quick here. But it says this in verse 11, Paul says, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So again, one other companion Paul mentions here in this passage He's a man who was named Jesus by his parents, but was known as Justice by his friends. And we don't know much about this guy. Doesn't give us a whole ton of detail about this guy. In fact, the only thing we really know about him from this passage is that he did ministry work with the Apostle Paul, that he comfort, comforted the Apostle Paul, and that he had grown up in a Jewish household, which is why he was called a man of the circumcision. That's all we know about this guy. So that I mean somewhere along the light, or somewhere along the way, Justice saw the light and had a change of heart. He would have had to have. And even though many of the people at the time who shared his national and his religious heritage, even though they rejected Jesus, Justice believed in Jesus, served Jesus, stood by those who were persecuted for the name of Jesus, and even adopted a nickname because he didn't feel like he was worthy to carry the name Jesus as his own name. He starts going by a nickname. So what can we take away from a brief passage like this? It's very brief, and again, it's one of those portions of Scripture that I think, if you were just reading through the book of Colossians, if I was just reading through the book of Colossians, this would definitely be a part that I would probably be tempted to just kind of glaze over, go through real quick, just a list of names. Maybe you'd be tempted to do that too. I think sometimes I do that, maybe I shouldn't. You just kind of look at it, and you're like, quick list of names, you just don't think much about it, you just get to the end. But what can we take from a passage like this? I have to tell you, one of my big takeaways is the fact that Jesus is delighted to take people with all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of life experiences, and welcome them into his family. And then he grants all kinds of people who maybe at one point maybe felt like a misfit, or maybe felt like they didn't measure up in some way because their life just wasn't so tidy. And he takes a life like that, and he allows us to become genuine partners with him in his mission to rescue a lost world. So I don't know if you feel like your life isn't super tidy, but the people listed in this passage did not have super tidy lives. They had redeemed lives. They had lives that were very distant from the Lord, and then the Lord brought them near and did amazing things in and through them. And so, again, I don't know what parts of your life maybe even right now feel messy, or feel unconventional there's probably something I don't know if those parts feel present I don't know if they feel distant but I wouldn't get too hung up on them these are actually not things that define you forever they're momentary circumstances even if they feel like major things they're not really things that that are part of our, our eternal identity they're experiences not our identity Every one of the men in this passage, including Paul, had an unconventional and potentially messy past, and yet here we are, a couple thousand years later, talking about them and rejoicing in what Christ did through them during that era of history. So let me say this as we finish up this morning Jesus is still making history. So don't be too shocked. When he decides to do something through your life and through your experiences that testifies to his goodness and ministers to the people that he brings into your life, don't be too shocked when he does something amazing through your experiences as well. I've seen him do it a million times. I've watched him do it in my own life. I've seen him do it in the lives of many of my friends. I've seen him do it in the lives of many of the people in this church. It's what the Lord does. These are not things that define us. Our identity, just like Onesimus, his identity was not being in a runaway slave. He's a new man in Christ. You're a new man, you're a new woman in Christ. And don't be too shocked when he does something special through you as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for a passage of Scripture like this, where you demonstrate things to us that are honestly amazing to think about. Lord, it's just so amazing to be able to look at a passage like this and see some of the the names that are listed here, Tychicus, Onesimus, and Aristarchus, and Mark, and Justice. Even Barnabas got an honorable mention there. And Lord, there's a lot we can learn when we look at the, the biography or the life experience of other people. And so often we go through life thinking we're the only one who this or we're the only one who that. We think we're the only one that's experienced the difficult things we've gone through or, or the things that we look back at and say, oh, I'm really embarrassed about this or I'm really embarrassed about this. And then, then we read through the pages of Scripture and we see, oh, no, there's someone just like me right there. And then we watch what you did and how you carve out an identity for us in you. It's not tied to the things of this world. So, Lord, we're just so grateful for that. We're grateful for the fact that that you don't just improve our lives, you give us a brand new life. And by your grace, we pray that we would walk with you in the midst of it. Lord, thank you for the people that you bring into our lives. There are people that you've brought into our lives that have encouraged us and comforted us in the midst of difficult seasons, and there are people that have served as examples to us that have inspired us to, to aim higher in our walk with you. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be the type of thing that we keep in mind as we interact with others. We pray that as we've been shown grace and mercy by you, that we would show grace and mercy to others, that we would be people who are eager to give a second chance. We pray that we would do this all in recognition of the second chance that you've blessed us with. So, Lord, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the people you bring into our lives. Thank you for the experiences that you've allowed us to have. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember that you don't waste any of it that it's all very, very useful in your hands, and it's all stuff that you can use to make us stronger and help us to be a more uh, fitting testifier or ambassador to your goodness in the midst of our generation. Lord, this world is distant from you, and it's not looking for you. And when we look at our culture, there are a lot of things that cause us alarm, but we know that you are the solution we pray, Lord, that, that many more would come to know you, and during our brief time here, we pray that we'd be just like Aristarchus was, in the sense that we're just not afraid to tell people just how good you are, and how much you want to change our lives, and how you're so much better than the idols of this world that so often we've been tempted to, to, to align ourselves to, and we don't want to do that anymore. We just want to be people who walk with you and enjoy the, the privilege of living in your presence daily. So, Lord, thank you for your presence with us today. Thank you for allowing us to meditate on the truth of this passage of Scripture this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you prepare us for what you have in store for us next. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.